Holy Spirit, I thank you for this amazing group of people. I thank you for your word and the truth of your word. And God, as we wrestle with that, I ask that each person here would be able to find something out of what gets said today that they can connect with, that you can talk with them this week, that you can help them and each one of us to grow a little bit more in our relationship with you, to get a little bit more free in our relationship with you. Thanks for helping us, God. Amen. Last week I talked about the Bible. I tried to show that the Bible isn't a menu that we get to pick and choose from. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. We either take all of it with the things we agree with, the things we don't agree with, the things we understand, the things we don't understand, and say, okay, it's all of God's Word, and I'm learning how to relate to it, not customizing it to me. Our point was to effectively understand and apply the Bible in our life, we must be able to hear God's voice. I also promised that I would talk about a subject that is rarely talked about, and when it's been brought up in the past, at least my experience is, it's always been negative. Today I'm going to talk about biblical doubt, and I picked that particularly. Now, if you have questions or disagreements or anything else, I'll, I'll be around right in the front. You come up afterwards, and we can chat a little bit more. Okay? Be nice. In dealing with the word doubt, Christians rarely are in a place where we can feel like free from guilt when we talk about the issue of doubt. The main place this comes from, it certainly was in my life. I spent a fair chunk of just when I started walking with Jesus, getting free from guilt and condemnation for having doubt. Anybody else relate to that? Okay, there's a couple people. All right, well, we're going to get along good with this, and the rest of you can come along for the ride. The verses that were preached and taught about doubt actually helped to solidify my doubt. So we're going to turn to that. James chapter 1, verse 5. That means you're getting at your phones or your Bible or whatever, and, and you're going to actually read along together. James 1, verse 5. And I'm looking at you not to make you feel guilty. I'm looking at you to see when you quit scrolling with your thumb that you probably found the verse. James 1, verse 5 and following says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks... He must believe and not doubt, because whoever doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all that he does. I want you to note two phrases that certainly landed with me and probably a few of the rest of us. In verse 6, it says, he must believe and not doubt. That's pretty uncompromising. There's no room for doubt. You've got to believe in order to have the thing happen. And then in verse uh, 7, that man should not think he will receive anything from God. 
So my conclusion was, when I pray and it doesn't happen, this just happened. I didn't have enough faith. I had doubt. So my prayer didn't get answered because the Bible says I'm not going to get anything at all if I have doubt. Which is a problem. Because we all doubt. Hello? We're faking it if we say we never doubt any of the stuff that's in this book. You've, you've read the book once or twice? It says remarkable things. It says, lay hands on the sick and they will get well, and then they don't get well. It says, cast all your cares on him. Be anxious for nothing. And you don't have any doubt about that? I would suggest we're not being truthful, because we do. I had been taught to avoid doubt at any cost because of those verses. Because it says, if you doubt, you won't get anything. Yeah? There has to be something else going on. Even after I committed my life, I was painfully aware that I was afflicted with doubt about all kinds of things. God, I don't understand. I did what it said and it didn't work. I don't even know what it is. I don't know how to do it. Really? Do you mean that for me? Be anxious for nothing. Are you serious? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then why do I feel condemned? Must be doubt. Nobody taught me how to deal with doubt. Try harder. Read the Bible more. So I read, you know, the the passage they gave me on doubt, which was James 1, and I got more doubt because I didn't do what it said. Now, I'm talking about this because as we start to talk about this periodic series of what we believe that comes out of the Apostles' Creed, we have to believe the Bible's the real deal, and it's completely true, even when we don't know how to apply it. And when we do have trouble with, with doubt, it can't shut us down. There has to be a way forward. And that's why I chose the title today, Biblical Doubt. I want to suggest there are two kinds of doubt. There's doubt unto faith or biblical doubt, and then there's doubt unto self-control. I control the things. I'll talk about that in a minute. If you don't get anything else from today, here's what I'd like you to get. The key in moving from doubt to faith is maintaining and developing a personal relationship with Jesus. I can. I was going to give you another opportunity. The key to moving forward from doubt into faith is to maintain and develop our personal relationship with God. You can read the Bible until you die and go to heaven and not move forward in your relationship, in in, in understanding and overcoming doubt if you do not have a personal relationship with God. Remember last week I shared to be able to hear and interact with the Bible as we read it, we had to hear God's voice while we were doing it. My breakthrough with the Bible, including doubt, came from when I was reading Isaiah 1. Now, I don't know about you. You don't have to turn there. I don't know about you, but I don't read Isaiah very often. I know that sounds kind of, you know, pagan for a 
pastor to say I don't read. But I don't read Isaiah very often. I don't read the Old Testament prophets very much. I grew up in the late, you know, I, I, I hit high school in the late 60s and early 70s, and Ezekiel sometimes sounds like he's on drugs. That was my culture when I grew up. It's weird until God starts to make real all this stuff to us, till we understand the whole flow of history and all of that. But to get it to apply something to us, we've got to have God talk to us. Here's how I want to apply this verse to you in your life right now. So I'm reading Isaiah 1, and I'm just, I don't know why I was there, I was just reading it. I got to verse 18. Go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 1.18, just so you can see I'm not making something up. Isaiah 1.18. One of my life verses, I've memorized this verse, this verse in about three or four different chapter, it, um, versions of the Bible. Isaiah 1.18, if you're not there, catch up as you can, says, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And it was like God spoke into my very being. It got into my bones. It became a part of who I am. I was just minding my own business, reading through Isaiah, because you've got to read the Bible every day, right? But I don't read the Bible just to read the Bible. I read the Bible and say, God, what do you want to say to me? And I'm going to keep reading until I get something that you say something to me. Because the Bible doesn't get applied to us until he says, you, right now, this verse means this to you right now. Then we start growing with it. Now, in context, and context always matters when we're, we're getting rhema, the context is God is saying, here's what's going to happen to you. Here's the complete forgiveness and, and being made clean that happens to you because of the finished work of Jesus. That's what Isaiah 118 says. What it said to me personally applied was an invitation from God to say, let's talk. Let's talk about everything. Bring me your questions. Excited my heart because I have a lot of questions. God says, I want to share my heart with you. Come now. Let's reason together. Let's talk about stuff. Bring it all on. We can't come up with a question God hasn't already been asked a whole whack of times already. Bring it on. Let's talk. Because out of that relational connection is where we're going to start to grow. We're going to be able to deal with stuff. The key in moving from doubt to faith is to maintain and develop a personal relationship with God. Let's be honest and real, or at least I will be honest and real with you. We all have doubt. I know what it says in James 1, but we all have doubt. We prayed for financial breakthrough and it didn't come, and doubt is there. We prayed for salvation of family and they didn't. They haven't accepted Jesus, and doubt comes. We read a Bible promise and say that's for me, and it doesn't happen the way we expected it to happen. I want to suggest to you, doubt is not a sin. Doubt is not a sin. There is a biblical doubt that moves us towards relationship, 
and there's a personal, fleshly, legalistic doubt that draws us away from God. But doubt is not a sin. Anybody feel better yet? Because knowing that I doubt something doesn't immediately put me in the classification of sin. Doubt is inevitable, but having doubt doesn't have to be negative. I want to suggest biblical doubt is an invitation from God to discover new things about what he is doing through me, in me, and with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. If you don't read periodically the prayer in Ephesians 3, it starts in verse 14, goes through 21. It's spectacular. And it goes so far beyond where I live most of the time as if to be confounding. It's an awesome prayer that Paul has that if I am not aware, it will send me into negative doubt. But I want to focus on just one verse here. Ephesians 3.20. Paul writes this. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that works within us. Do you understand that? Come back again and read this thing. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is, in work, that is at work within us. God's power working in me is so spectacular it goes beyond what I can think or imagine. Imagine the most amazing thing you can in terms of your relationship with God. And he says, this thing goes beyond that. So when God says one of those go beyond that things to you, I'm going to have doubt. It isn't a bad thing. It's like, are you kidding me? Really? I don't know if I can believe that. If you're new to your relationship with God, it might be that God has totally and completely forgiven you of every single sin, and you stand before God right now if you've confessed all your sins with absolutely no sin record against you at all. You say, God, remember that sin? He goes, nope. Really? Exceedingly abundantly beyond all you ask or think. When we get confronted with that stuff, we're going to have doubt from time to time. You never leave me or forsake me? I mean, literally in a way that I would know I'm not alone when I feel like I'm totally alone and nobody gets me and nothing's working right. And yet you say you never leave it. Really? It doesn't feel like it right now. Doubt. We all have it. Doubt simply means this, to be uncertain about, to consider questionable or unlikely to hesitate to believe. The definition of doubt does not carry with it good or bad. The goodness or the badness of doubt depends on what we do with doubt when we get it. That's actually pretty good, but, you know, just keep that in mind. Immeasurably more than I can ask or think is going to produce, from time to time, uncertainty and a hesitation to believe. 
Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Really? Isn't that for like the special people who really figured out this and got the anointing and everything? But that's what the book says, immeasurably beyond what we're aware of. What's the Great Commission? Go to all the world and pre- preach the gospel. Teach them to obey all I've commanded you. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Raise the dead. That's your job description. How you doing with it? You've raised the dead recently. Yeah? And when that happens, we go, wait a minute. Doubt. It's not bad, depending on what we do with the doubt when it happens, when we read the job description, when we read the verses, and then we say, wait, what am I going to do with that? And that's the issue of doubt. But what I hope for you to get, if you get nothing else from today, other than continuing to press into God, is that when you doubt, the doubt in and of itself is not a sin and doesn't condemn you and doesn't make you a second-class citizen. depends on what you do with it. Did that get in to anybody? Some of you would not raise your hands if Jesus were standing up here doing it, right? And I'm like eight light years away from that. I want to suggest there are two kinds of doubt. One is doubt from a heart that wants control. What does that look like? Prove it to me. That kind of doubt says, I don't really want to go there. I want to stay in control. So you say. There's another kind of doubt, and I would suggest this is biblical doubt, that is this invitation to discover something that God wants to give, plant, and release in us that says, really? What? For me? You and me doing that? It's this drawing into something that, uh, that's bigger, that has possibility. And we can do either one. When I was first starting to teach about spiritual gifts, the church I was in um, heard about it, and they were... I'm working on gracious speech right now. Less than enthusiastic about my discussion about spiritual gifts. And so one of the elders in that church came up to me and said, so what's this deal with tongues? You're talking about it all. These tongues, gift of tongues. They're not for now. It's not something you can use. I heard somebody once that used it and they just babbled for a while and, you know, it was all, you know, nonsense. It didn't make any sense and and, and, and we can't be having that in our church. Skeptical doubt. I still want to be in control. In my class, with somebody who was fairly new to accepting Jesus, said, I don't know how you do that in North America, being my age, but had never really been introduced to Jesus. And about six months earlier, she had accepted Jesus and had started to experience the presence of Holy Spirit. And she goes, I want to know about this thing. Okay, the Bible says when you speak in tongues, you are going to speak directly to God in a language that heaven understands. 
And she goes, really? I could have a thing that would let me? No. God, how could that be? Really? Biblical doubt unto finding something we didn't know we had available to us. Really? How can I be? How can I do that? I'm just like, I just learned to accept Jesus. Really? Yeah, you can. I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. Do you kind of get the difference? One says, I got to stay in control. I doubt that anything beyond what I understand and can control at the moment is going to be something God wants me to do. The other one says, exceeding abundantly beyond all that I ask or think. I don't know what it is, but God, if you got it for me, really, even that? Okay, here we go. Unto knowing him more, doing more with him. Come now and let us reason together. I want to suggest is biblical doubt because it's an invitation from God to say, let's talk. Let me show you more. Let me show you something that will blow your mind. It's going to be so good. Now, if I'm going to make some kind of a declaration like this, I ought to have some biblical basis for all this, right? That doubt isn't in and of itself bad, but in fact actually is used by God to help people move forward in their relationship with God. It doesn't mean we stay in doubt, but when we get it, it's like God saying, I said something to you, you got no grid for. It is bigger than you. Perhaps the most famous person who doubted in the Bible even got named for it, His name is Thomas. Not this Thomas because he's got it together. But the Thomas in the Bible didn't so much. Here was a man who walked with Jesus. He saw the big teachings, but he also got to do the disciples only meeting discussion with Jesus. He ministered together with them, and yet he was known as Doubting Thomas. And here's why. Turn to John chapter 20, starting with verse 24. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Take the time to look at it. You may see something in a verse that I don't say, but Holy Spirit makes it alive to you. And by all means, go with what Holy Spirit makes alive to you. So let's look at this little encounter with this massive man of faith, uh, Thomas. Verse 24, now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Jesus had just been raised from the dead. and the first encounter the disciples had, Thomas wasn't with them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers in the, where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Okay, I don't know where the difference between unbelief and doubt is, but this guy's really creeping close to the line of just flat-out unbelief. A week later, verse 26, his disciples were at the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. Dude, the door is locked, and you came in. Opportunity to grow 
in our understanding and relationship with God because a doubt was there. He said to them, peace be with you, verse 27. Then he specifically said to Thomas, and this is what I want us to get when we're dealing with doubt. He comes in, he does this big thing, and then he turns to Thomas. Thomas is the guy who goes, unless I do all this stuff and have this happen, I am not believing. God gets us when we have areas of doubt. Not only does he get us, he will make a specific effort to connect with us to help us move from uncertainty and doubt into faith. What does he do? He comes to Thomas, and what did Thomas need? Touch this, touch this. What does Jesus say to do in this verse? 27. This rocks to me. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. Put your hand and put it in my side. (laughs) Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. He's saying, you don't have to doubt anymore. I will give you a different reason to believe. He started in virtual unbelief. And God didn't get mad at him. Jesus wasn't upset. In fact, when he came, the next time he says, especially you, Thomas, because I know what was wrong, and I'm going to speak into the place where you had doubt. Now, God is not a respecter of persons. If he'll do it for Thomas, he'll do it for you. He'll do it for me. God is willing to come in the places we have doubt to draw us into a place where we can come into belief for something we never thought possible. This would have been an awesome time for amen. Amen. Good job. God met Thomas where he was at, and God will meet you and me where we're at, in the places where we doubt. First time I ever got asked to go speak somewhere at a conference, I came home and said, oh my gosh, you know, Paul Paul was the pastor. Paul asked me to come and speak at a conference, and I got to speak like six different times, and I don't have anything to do. And Mary goes, you got a whole binder full of teaching and all this kind of stuff. I don't have anything to say. I don't know what I'm doing. I needed God to come and say, I got this for you. Because for me, speaking in front of people and doing a conference was an exceedingly abundantly beyond all I can ask or think. I never asked for it. I didn't want it. He says, no, let's talk about this a little bit. I'm going to help you move from unbelief and doubt into faith. And now he wants me to travel around the world and prophesy to people. I don't do it because I'm any good at it. I've learned some skills, but I do it because I know God's going to show up because he moved me from doubt to faith. I walk into a place to share and teach. I'm going to get prophetic words, and they're going to bless people. Not because I'm anybody special, except I'm God's kid, and that makes me really special. And I get to participate in doing things that are exceedingly abundantly beyond anything I ever thought would happen in my life. If I died today, I've already done more than I ever thought God would do with me. And I got more stuff to do. I got more exceeding abundantly things to do. And so do you. If you're comfortable and content with where you're at with God right now, Stay in Ephesians 3.20 until God gives you an exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. Because that's his job. That's his business. Now, I don't think Thomas understood all of what was going on. 
But Thomas did the one thing necessary to move from doubt to faith. He didn't break community. He hung with the disciples, even though they were saying this thing that was like way over, out, out beyond his belief. And he kept talking to Jesus. That's how we move from doubt to faith. One other thing that's really cool, verse 29. Then Jesus told him, that is Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Have you not yet seen a breakthrough? Have you not seen the exceeding abundant make any kind of sense in your life? He says, there is a blessing for you. I'm blessed when I can't see it in front of me. When I step out and say, okay, I'm not really sure about this thing, and okay, doubt's been back there, but I'm going to take a step forward. I have a blessing already. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. I just thought I'd give you that one for free. God will take the time and meet us where we are. Most of the Pharisees were this kind of thing. They were against God because they wanted to keep control of the religious activity that was going on. They had the arms crossed. They were skeptical. But one wasn't. You can read it later. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 21 is Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. What's really interesting about that is that is the longest recorded interaction where Jesus had with one person in the Bible. And what was the subject? Doubt. Really? How can a man be born again? That was his question. He doubted. But he came asking. He wasn't like the Pharisees that stayed in their own place and read their own books and agreed with each other. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We're right. We're right. They're all wrong. He says, Jesus, I don't get this. Read the whole dialogue about it. It's, It's interesting and informative. But why would God choose the most significant interaction to record and it would be about doubt? I suggest it's because what he wanted... Nicodemus to step into the exceeding abundantly beyond all he could ask or think was, here's what happens when you accept me as your savior. And here's what happens for every single person in history to be able to experience. So we've recorded it. But doubt helped move Nicodemus. The key to moving from doubt to faith is the maintaining and increasing of our personal relationship with Jesus. Gideon is a prototype of doubt. I think Thomas got a bad rap. Not this Thomas, because he's got it together. But the Thomas in the Bible gets a bad rap for being called Doubting Thomas. Come on, Gideon was the doubter of all doubters. If you haven't read the story, it's in Judges 7. I'm going to, it's too long. It's like from, it's like 30 verses or something like that, where he has this ongoing dialogue with God about every reason why he cannot do what God said for him to do. So I'm just going to highlight a couple things. You can look at it later. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Yeah. Give me a prophetic word. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Gideon replies, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why have all these bad things happened to us? 
That's a faith-filled response to, yeah, not so much. God answered him and said, I am sending you. Well, that should be enough, right? Okay, you're going to do this? He says, well, what about this? And God says, I'm sending you. Eh, well, not so much. Next verse says, let's see, where am I? I just hit this thing the wrong way. Okay, the Lord says to him, I'm sending you. Gideon says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? We're still doubting the first one. But instead of being angry, what does God do? He says, hey, I'm going to be with you in this whole thing. Surely now we're in, right? Not with Gideon. Gideon replied, well, now if I've found favor in your eyes. Excuse me, if? But how often do we do that? God says something to us. We read a promise. The Holy Spirit makes it alive and go, well, if this really applies to me, how does it work? So Gideon gets these two direct encounters with God where he says, I'm with you and I'm going to be with you. And it's, it's, we're, you know, we're just going to set the whole nation free. If I found favor with you, eh, it sounds so much like me. It's just disappointing to me and to Gideon. Give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. There's an interim there where they do an offering. And then with the tip of the staff that was in the hand of the angel, the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. You want a sign? Here's my offering. Out of a rock with no flame, a flame comes and consumes the whole thing. That's a pretty good sign, right? We've now got two words of the Lord and a sign from God that's like, whoa, that is pretty significant. Spirit of the Lord came, we continue, came to Gideon. Gideon, the man who said all this happened to him, said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel through me. And what does God do? This is what I want you to get. What did God do? He did it. Man, the the thing that I grew up in was God would have struck me dead. That's what, you know, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yeah? That's what it says in the book. And yet God says, this one's taking a little bit extra work. (laughs) But that's okay. And it happened. The fleece was wet. The ground was dry. Then Gideon, bless his heart, said to God, don't be angry with me. Even Gideon knows we're pushing the limit just a little bit on this doubt thing. Let me make just one more request. Okay, like the five in front of it didn't really count or something. Are you... Catching the capacity for God to meet us where we're at and help us through from doubt to faith. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did what Gideon asked. 
Isn't that amazing? God's desire to work with us in our unbelief when, or our doubting, and we're pressing towards trying to find out. And if he did it for Gideon, he'll do it for you. He'll do it for me. God is no respecter of persons. We're all equal with him. If he'll do it for Gideon, he'll do it for me. If you do it for Nicodemus, he'll do it for you. One more. Mark 9, verses 20 to 24. The context for this is that there's been a demonized um, boy, and his dad came to Jesus, told the disciples, Here's this demonized kid. Can you get this stuff out? Can you get this thing out of him? Can you return wholeness to my son? Didn't work. We had faith. We prayed. We really believed. We were into this. And it didn't work. What were they feeling right now? Doubt. Of course they were. You said, cast out demons. I couldn't cast it out. How come it didn't work? Of course they had doubt. See, I think we put all the, the people in the Bible, particularly the ones that tended to end up on the right side, we tend to put them on a platform that says they don't think like we do. Of course they do. They got the same skin, same blood, same weakness, everything else. When they prayed and it didn't work, they had doubt. The dad really had doubt. Jesus said to him, okay, bring him here. And we take it up in verse 20. So they brought him, the, the, the young man. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell down on the ground and rolled around foaming at his mouth. Yes, that thing still happens. Demons didn't change their strategy. Another sermon. Je, no, verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has, this been, has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. I don't know about you. I've only had that happen a couple of times in my life. But when I first saw it happen, I had some doubt. Never done this. I knew it was in the book. I didn't know it was going to be laying on the ground in front of me with four adult women holding down a nine-year-old girl who was doing that. God, this is out of my comfort zone. I'm not doing so good with this thing right here. Doubt was an opportunity for me to move from doubt into faith. God wasn't mad because I had doubt. God wasn't mad at the disciples because they had doubt. It's a chance to move into something we've never done, exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. Are you a little tired of the way life is right now as a Christian? Exceeding abundantly is part of our heritage and our DNA. We think too small. 
We think too limited. It's that guy or this guy or this woman or that person. Ephesians 3 is for everybody. Verse 22, it often throws him into the fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. Jesus' immediate response to the person who needed it and to the disciples watching, if you can, everything is possible to him who believes. What was Jesus doing in this transaction? Moving the disciples from, we prayed and it didn't work, I doubt, to everything is possible. It's a process. We don't all arrive there at once. What happens? Verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And I want to suggest... (laughs) I want to suggest that many of us are right there. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. We haven't sinned because we said that. It's a declaration to God that says, I want to be moved from a place where I doubt into a place where I have faith. What happened in Acts? These guys who couldn't get one demon out of one person went around and changed the world because they moved from doubt to faith. Thomas himself, not this Thomas, because he's cool, but the Thomas who had the problem here ended up in India and evangelized India. South India is massively Christian now, or at least Christian kind of, sort of. But they have a Christian belief because of the missionary work of a guy who said, I ain't going to believe unless I can put my fingers in the holes and my hand in his side. And God didn't say, you're out, no faith, you're gone. He said, come here, Thomas, I'll do for you what you need. I love this man in this story. I can so relate to him. God, I believe. I believe everything in the Bible. I just can't get it to work for me. I got some doubts in some areas. It's not going right. I got a wife who I cannot pray for and get well to this point. And I've seen, you know, legs get healed. And I had one thing where I prayed for, and the person's broken arm got healed to the point where there was no fracture after he had broken it. The line went away. He got a new bone. I can't get my wife healed. God, I got some stuff I got questions about. Moving me from doubt to faith. I was in India one time. I went to a church. There was about 75 or 80 people there. I said, how many people here are sick? About three-quarters of them put up their hand. We prayed. General prayer had people lay hands on each other. We got done. I said, how many people are still sick? They have pain or anything in their life. Nobody raised their hand. I said to my translator, I said, are they just faking this to like, you know, because I'm the guest speaker and they want to make me feel good or something? And he goes, oh, no. I'm their pastor. I know what all these people had. My exceeding abundantly got a little bit bigger. Doubt is not a sin. Staying in doubt, becoming hardened, saying, this is what I believe and I can't go past that, 
then we're running into some problems. But doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is the opportunity that Jesus extends to you and me to say, exceeding abundantly for you in your life. When I'm confronted with something in the Bible that I read and I experience something different that I don't understand, I'm unable to align it with what I know is true in the Bible. I can't make it real in my life. I have doubts. I have two one-sentence prayers that starts my, my understanding and my movement from doubt to faith. First one is, come now, let us reason together. God, I got to talk. I don't get it, and it's not working. Second one is this. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. The key to moving from doubt to faith is maintaining and expanding our personal relationship with God. God, I thank you for these amazing people. I thank you for the hunger in their heart. I thank you that this is a season because it's always a season for this. It's a season for exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And I ask that each person would have courage to sit down and say, come let us reason together with God. God, what's it going to take? What do I need to have happen? What do you want to open to me that will move me from doubt to faith so that I can experience exceeding abundantly beyond all that I ask or think? part of the package, and I want more. It helped me to move from doubt. It helps me to move from doubt and unbelief into belief. Maybe it'll help you too. The Lord bless you guys. Have a faith-filled week. Have a freedom from guilt about doubt week. Amen. Thank you guys.